Yuga goes on. And Srila Prabhupada knew that. And he was urgent. His life was urgent to get this translation done. So he offered his obeisances at the start of the fourth canto. And this morning I was looking and I thought, I wonder when he wrote the fourth canto, when he translated it. And do you know, there's a letter from November 1968. 1968. He came in 1965. Where he's saying that he wanted them, would they be ready soon to print the third canto and the full fourth canto? In 1968, he had done this work. In 1969, he was speaking about how he had tried to get publishing done in India and it wasn't possible and he'd lost the money because the disciple hadn't followed and, and gone to the right place and done the right thing. He said the money had been swallowed up and there he is, he lost his typewriter, he lost this. He's poor and he says, <coughs> I require $50,000 immediately. <laughs> selling or not selling, I want to see these books published. This is my ambition. So he's asking for $50,000 and he has nothing. And now we see these beautiful books, so beautifully published. They've been meticulously edited for any English errors so that they, they read well. So a scholar will read them and say, this is an excellent translation. They have these amazing pictures that a group of devotees gave their lives for to do the artwork. And they sit perhaps on our shelves at home. They sit perhaps here in the temple and perhaps we don't pay them much attention a lot of the time because we're quite busy. We've got this to do and that to do and this to do and that to do and on and on and on in our schedule and we, we offer them our, our heartfelt respect. <laughs> but they should stay there and we should keep being busy. And so Srila Prabhupada himself, he said, if I have one criticism of my devotees, it is that they like to sell my books, but they don't like to read my books. And so that means that we don't become educated. And education in spiritual life, it doesn't just mean voluminous facts. You filled your head with all of this knowledge. It, it, it involves also a, a communion of heart. And that's why we need to hear together, because what happens is we hear something. And when we hear that one thing, it can affect us deeply. It can actually move around a few of our concepts of what's important and what's not important. Just by a phrase, just by a statement of the Bhagavatam. So here we are. And we're starting, as I mentioned, the fourth canto is about this secondary creation. So the first personality we meet, for those who are not familiar with the fourth canto, is we hear about Swayambhuva Manu. So we heard that the primary creation is done by the Lord himself. He creates all the elements. Just like if you want to build something and you bring all the materials and say, here are the materials. And then you call this person, build this house for me. All the materials, I provided the materials, you provide the labor. 
And then he says, yes, yes, I can build this house, it's possible. And he gets involved and what does he do? He calls other people under him. He says, I need your help, I need your help, I'll pay you, come here and you together will build this house. So first there's Brahma, he's like the one who's going to create. Secondarily, primarily the Lord creates the elements. No one can create the elements. No brilliant scientist can answer the question, where did these things come from? Even if they create a new theory, every year they create a new theory. Every few years they create a new theory. But no one can tell you where the elements originally came from. A big bang? Where were they before the bang? If you think, if you just become a little thoughtful, you'll realize that there's flaws in the educational system. And so whilst we must learn and we must have a career and we must do something in the world, we should always take things with a grain of salt. Just as the materialistic person will take what we're saying with a big pile of salt. <laughs> but we say, no, no, we're, we're cultivating this understanding of truth. So we're not 100% sure if yours is right but we have to pass our exams, we have to get our PhD, we have to do these things. So we will answer your questions, we will write what you want, and we will can proceed with our lives. <laughs> but inwardly we will know that actually you know very little, very, very, very little of anything. And the Bhagavatam is profoundly deep. So Swayambhuva Manu had three daughters. Does anyone know the names of the daughters of Swayambhuva Manu? Oh, good girl. Akuti, Prashuti, and Devahuti. Devahuti. So in the third canto, we've heard already about Devahuti and her marriage to Kadama Muni and her son, who was her son? Yes, Kapilamuni. We've heard of Kapilamuni's teachings. We've, we've heard about Devahuti. So then, as we continue through here, we start to fear, in the first chapter, describes his daughters, in the first chapter, in the first chapter of the fourth canto, describes the daughters of Swayambhuva Manu. Then, in the, sixth, in the next six chapters, it describes Daksha. So, who was Daksha married to? Sati, yes? Not married to Sati. Who was he married to? Prasuti. Prasuti. And who was his daughter? Sati, exactly. And who was the husband of his daughter? Yes, Lord Shiva. So we hear about, uh, there was a bit of a disaster, family quarrel. <laughs> There's a bit of an upset that took place there uh, for Prashuti and her family. But by the mercy of Lord Shiva, everything ended, you could say, relatively well. And then we go on to hear of another descendant coming down through Daksha from Swayambhuva Manu. And that is who? Do you know? Who do we hear about next in the fourth canto? Dhruva Maharaj. Yes, Dhruva Maharaj. We did a puppet show of Dhruva Maharaj. 
So Dhruva Maharaj comes and there's from chapter 5 to chapter 11 is about Dhruva Maharaj. And then after Dhruva Maharaj we hear about King Prithu. So King Prithu, he's in the line of Dhruva Maharaj, who's in the line of Swayambhuva Manu. And there's um, many chapters, 11 chapters about King Prithu. And now we come to chapter 22. And actually early in chapter 12, way, way, way back, when Narada is speaking, he's, he's teaching about Dhruva Maharaj, he refers to the Prachetas. And he says that he is... He had gone to the arena of the Prachetas and he had chanted these verses and then he chants three verses in the Bhagavatam. And then this, all of this information is being heard by who? Vidura. And who's speaking to Vidura and telling him all this? Maitreya. So then Vidura, because he's curious, and, and Vidura would know all of this. This is all part of the Vedic culture, he would know all of this. But when an opportunity came to hear from Maitreya, he was so curious as if he'd never heard any of these things before. So he asked about these Prachetas, who were they? What were they doing? And then Narada, Maitreya tells what Narada said next. So then comes the uh, Prithu Maharaj, and at the end of Prithu Maharaj, then again we hear about the Prachetas. So Prithu Maharaj had one main son, he had two wives, he had four sons by one and one son by the other, and his main son was called Antadan. He was given this name, it means something to do with darkness. Because when Prithu Maharaj was performing a sacrifice and Indra came to disturb his sacrifice, this is quite fascinating actually, Indra is the head of the Devas, Prithu Maharaj is an empowered incarnation of Lord Vishnu, and here's Indra meddling to try to uh, thwart him from performing the full number of Asameda sacrifices. And so Prithu Maharaj at first he was watching this, he kept stealing the horse. He'd steal the horse and the horse wasn't there. And eventually the brahmanas who were performing the yagya decided to chant mantras to pull Indra into the fire because he was so mischievous. But it was the son of Prithu Maharaj who interfered and he, he made, made peace uh, between Indra and the brahmanas. And so Indra gave him the name Antadan because he was sort of like in the dark. He kind of, he arranged it all. So he wasn't very interested in rulership. He was a sadhu. And sometimes it happens in the Vedic tradition that a king has a son and his son is renounced. And his son is not interested in all the headaches of Vedic management, all the responsibilities. So he established his sons as kings. And he had one son whose name was Havidan. And Havidan, he had another son, and his name, let me catch my, I've got to catch up my list here. His name was Barisat. 
And Barisat was so interested in performing yagyas, 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 sacrifices, Vedic rituals that were meant not to please Hari, to please the Supreme, but to elevate him. He was interested in personal elevation leading towards the heavenly planets. And every time he would perform a yagya, there's an animal sacrifice would go on. And so he's actually accumulating for himself, because his yagyas are for himself. They're subtly or grossly motivated for his own advancement. And so each time he's, he's killing an animal for the yagya, he's accumulating something. And so at a certain point, Narada thought, this um, Barisat, or later he's called Prachina Barisat, he said, he's in the line of Dhruva. He's in the line of Swayambhuva Manu. And look what he's doing. He's so religious. <laughs> he's doing one ritual after another. He's going from this part of his kingdom to another part. It said that there were Kusagrats facing east for the Yagyas all over his kingdom. So he's a good religious man, highly praised. However, he doesn't actually understand the purpose of the yagya, and he doesn't understand the purpose of life. And so Narada decides to go and pay him a visit. And meanwhile, Prachinabahi has these ten sons, and each one of them is equally serious. Imagine if you had ten sons, and each one was equally serious. They didn't look left or right at anything. They served their father, they just wanted to do what he wanted, and he was so proud of his ten sons. And so he knew, this was the culture, that they have to perform austerities in order to have the, the caliber to be a real king. Now, these uh, leelas take place in the Satya Yuga. When I was a, a new devotee, a young devotee, I would read here and it would say that uh, he, this king, um, Prachinabahi, he wants his sons to go and perform austerities for 10,000 years. And I think that's unbelievable. 10,000 10, years? But when you take it into account that it is a different time scale, just as we can see on the higher planets, this way also there's a different time scale. Just like a, a, there are bugs who come flying in our window in the evening and we turn on a light, and by the morning they're lying dead on the ground. And that was their life. Their lifespan just passed. So in the same way, in the Satya Yuga, the lifespan is a hundred thousand years. So, what is, what is 10,000 years like? Ten. 10 years. So for 10 years they had to go away and they had to perform these austerities in relationship to their lives. So perhaps they were 10 years old when they had to go away, or perhaps a little older, but they had to go away and do this austerity to build their character. And so meanwhile, as he sends them away, Narada is planning to go and visit Prachinabahi himself and have a few words with him and sort of straighten out his vision.
which isn't entirely easy, but Narada has his ways. And the boys go off, young men, they go off. Now the mother of these boys, the wife of, of um, Prachinabahi, is called the daughter of the ocean. So I can't, and I can't unravel to you how the ocean has a daughter, but she's the daughter of the ocean. And so her sons choose to go to the ocean and perform austerities underwater. Again, this is a different age where by the process of yoga, Dhruva Maharaj stops breathing once a month or something, he breathes. So we need to have this, this understanding that this life, this world, our razzmatazz with our machinery and technology, this is just something. It's not everything. And there was such a history behind, and there will be so much ahead. And we should connect ourselves tightly to the Bhagavatam, because that will anchor us so that we don't get tossed around with the storms that will inevitably come in this difficult age. So the boys go off and they're going to the ocean to perform their austerities and they, they go east, I know west actually, and as they're walking along they come to this incredibly vast body of water. It's just like the ocean. It looks like the ocean. They can't see any land anywhere in the distance. And they're looking around at this huge, vast area of water. And on their sides, on the bank of the water, there's these beautiful trees. All kinds of big, healthy trees full of flowers and leaves and they're vibrant. And they're looking and they say, this is beautiful. And there are birds in the trees, all kinds of birds in the trees. Mostly we probably hear about four or five birds if we're lucky. But there's so many birds and there's water birds in the water. There's, there's swans in the water, there's lotuses growing in the water. And they think to themselves, this is a wonderful place. We've come to a very, very beautiful place. And as they're standing there, looking around at the scenery, they see that Lord Shiva has come. And they're very, very astonished actually. Because they hear the drums and they hear the instruments and then they see Lord Shiva. And they're very fortunate to see Lord Shiva and there's a description given of Lord Shiva. His bodily Luster was just like molten gold. If you have ever seen gold or even artificial uh, gold plating from China, something, you imagine that pouring gold, glittering gold. His bodily luster was just like molten gold. His throat was bluish and he had three eyes. One, two, three which looked very mercifully upon the devotees. He was accompanied by many musicians who were glorifying him and as soon as the potatoes saw him they immediately offered their obeisances in great amazement. They fell down at his feet 
And Lord Shiva became very pleased with the Prachetas because generally Lord Shiva is the protector of pious persons and persons of gentle behavior. He's the protector of pious persons and persons of gentle behavior. This is how Vaishnava views Lord Shiva. It's rather interesting actually, if you go online <coughs> and you put Lord Shiva's name, <coughs> it will take you to a multitude of websites, all sorts of websites, and you read what they think Lord Shiva is. And you'll read all kinds of things that they say, Lord Shiva is like this, Lord Shiva is formless, he's timeless, he's limitless, he's the patron of yoga, he manifests and unmanifests, he's everything, he's not limited to a person, he's the potential of life, he's all-encompassing, he's the universal consciousness. Now actually all those things are true, however, he's also a personality. This is the mysterious nature of transcendental personalities. They are they're, they're, they're full of qualities, they exhibit their energy in all sorts of amazing ways, but they're also a personality. And when we approach them in the correct way, we get reciprocation. Most people approach Lord Shiva. I'm sure so many of you are from India, you know what they approach Lord Shiva for. Give me this, give me this, give me this, give me this, take care of this, make sure that doesn't happen, watch this, on and on and on. A long list of material desires. But the Prachetas had been asked to perform austerity in the service of Lord Vishnu. And when Lord Shiva saw that, he came immediately. They didn't have to ask anything. And he was very, very pleased with them. And he said, you are the sons of Prachinambahi, and I wish all good fortune to you. I also know what you are going to do. And therefore, I am visible just to show you my mercy. He says, any person who is surrendered to the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Krishna, the controller of everything, material nature as the living, as the living in, sorry, I'll start again. The controller of everything, material nature as well as the living entity, is actually very dear to me. So we should know that Lord Shiva is very dear to us and we are very dear to him. But we should always remain in the context that we are Vaishnavas. We want to serve Krishna. We don't want, give me this, give me this, give me this. Then he tells them how difficult it is to actually see him. How difficult it is. And then he says, you are all devotees of the Lord, and as such I appreciate that you are as responsible as the Supreme Personality of Godhead Himself. I'll read that again. That's so sobering. You are all, you are all devotees of the Lord, and as such you, I appreciate that you are as responsible as the Supreme Personality of Godhead. I know in this way 
that the devotees also respect me and that I am dear to them. And thus no one can be as dear to the devotees as I am. Is Lord Shiva saying this? No one can be as dear to the devotees as I am. So then he says what we heard in the verse today. So we're going back and we're going to stop here and tomorrow what we're going to do is go forward. The, the uh, Rudra Gita is composed of 33 verses and it can be divided ra rather simply into three sections. So we will hear, we will start to hear something of the Rudra Gita tomorrow. So I will read you again the verse that we were hearing today. Now I shall chant one mantra, which is not only transcendental, pure and auspicious, but it is the best prayer for anyone who is aspiring to attain the ultimate goal of life. When I chant this mantra, please hear it carefully and attentively. So I'll stop here, and if we have any questions, please ask them. Yes, Sweta. Um, it's interesting that... Um, uh, Coming. King, um, was Microphone. not uh, really a devotee of Krishna, but was more religious. Yes. But on the other hand, his sons, Lord Shiva, recognized them as yes. devotees of Krishna. Yes. So it's very interesting because normally you will have, um, I mean, it, it's interesting how the father was not a devotee, but the, the sons were. So. But I, I think Narada saw the father as dormant. And there's probably many dormant people in the world. <laughs> And if you wake them up, all of a sudden, they become devotees. And you think, where did that come from? And it's because they're dormant. So we're also a bit dormant, have you noticed? <laughs> so we're also kind of, that's why we're interested in Lord Shiva's, uh, is he going to shake us a little bit and wake us up a little bit? Yes. His sons, he was fortunate, ten sons, and they were less dormant because they were obedient to him. And he told them what to do. And he told them to do something of value. So we must also carry that on with our little ones. <laughs> yes. Hare Krishna. Antadan. That wasn't his um, uh, birth name. You'll have to look it up in the fourth canto. <laughs> Yes. Well, it's part of the Vedic ritual. Uh oh. Uh oh. <laughs> it happens, sweeter. It happens sometimes. <laughs> That's what happened to me when Gornatai were being installed. <laughs> At least you are not a demon. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
We'll give you time. <laughs> yes, it happens. <laughs> now, kusa grass is used in Vedic sacrifices, and it seems as though you had to have it facing towards the east. There were so many rules involved. So many rituals. You have to do this, you have to do that. You have to test the mantra on an animal. And if the mantra, if it's not chanted properly, the animal will get... If the mantra is chanted properly, the animal will get back their life. If the brahmanas do anything incorrect in chanting the mantra, the animal will die. So it's part of all of that. It's part of what they had to do, to do the sacrifices. Good questions. Any more? Yes. Thank you so much for a wonderful class. As you emphasizing on please chant carefully and attentively, what does this mean like while practicing chanting carefully and attentively? <coughs> what does it mean to chant carefully and attentively? How to do that? That's a question that everybody here will probably want to know the answer to, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> well, I would say um, in the ideal, the ideal is, it means that you should be listening to the sound of the mantra. That's the ideal. That's the, that's the benchmark. Um, probably most of us find that most of the time we can't do that. So then we come down to the level of dutiful. This is spontaneous and now we come to the level of dutiful. So you should find a set time of the day to chant. You should try to make an environment around you that's, that helps, a peaceful environment, either <coughs> some place in your house or somewhere that you, you, you work at creating an atmosphere there. Uh, especially if you have a temple in your house, that's very helpful. And then you should sit or stand, whatever you need to do, for a certain amount of time and try to chant responsibly. And you should try, some people like to do a few breathing exercises before they start to calm down their mind, which is going everywhere. Um, you, you find your own process that helps you. And the process should assist in your chanting. And then you try your best to chant in the mood of calling out to Krishna that I need help. I'm not doing so well and I need help. Uh, rather than thinking, oh, this is just something I have to do, it's a, it's a routine. But please engage me in your service is the plea that we're asked to focus on. So that has many layers of meaning. So initially it may be, please give me something to do. <laughs> and then it may be, please give me something to do that will nourish my appreciation and understanding of the devotees or of the deities. Please give me something to do for the deities. Please give me something to help me understand Srila Prabhupada. Um, he came, I wasn't there, or maybe you were there <laughs> in another body. <laughs> so, so please um, give me some service. That's what the chanting is meant for. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Maji, thank you Hello. for the wonderful <laughs> class. Uh, my you, question was, you said, yeah. um, the scientists can never, um, like, know the origin of this whole world by making theories and yes. so then how do we preach to them about the uh, by like Krishna created all the material world because they think it's all mythology and all that. Um, 
I think it takes a very, very trained person to actually preach to them. If we talk to them, we'll sound silly because they have a language and they have, they've done, Srila Prabhupada explains, they've done a vast amount of austerity to learn what they've learnt. His complaint is that it's like if I'm sitting, there's, a, there's the door there, right? If some uh, horses were outside and they're galloping along here, they gallop past the door and they keep going and the door's open. I've seen them as they went through the door. Now I've studied that very carefully. I worked out how fast they were going, what they were doing, where their eyes were blinking. I've done a lot of study and research on that part. But I have no idea about this part, where they came from galloping along. I only saw that part. So he would say that's what the scientists are like. They've put so much effort in and some of them of course are quite demonic because they want to, they're determined to show that there's no nothing beyond science. But a, a serious person studying is genuinely trying to understand the truth but they don't know about where the horse came from and they don't know where the horse went because it's not visible to them. This is all that's visible. So when you try to uh, defeat them, you'll find it's very hard because they have, they have done some work on this part <laughs> more than you. They know more than you about that. But you know more than, than them about that. <laughs> so you have to work out your own method of... But mostly I think... Um, it's not so easy to try and defeat uh, a, a, um, a religion that's worldwide because Srila Prabhupada would talk about science as becoming the religion of Kali Yuga. Meaning religion means I have faith in this, I believe this, I was taught this, and this is how you do it, and my religion doesn't have a God, but everything else is there. So, you, good luck. <laughs> Thank you, Anthony. what attracted you to this section? Good question. I was wondering that myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to think back. Um, I think I was just moving through the Bhagavatam looking for something to share with you all. Uh, it, it helps me if I can come with something prepared because I have time, time in Perth to prepare rather than having to do it here. And if I, if I read a, a, a specific verse, um, I have to have some research into what, what it's about. So I found the, I think I found Dhruva Maharaj and then from there I found the prachetas. And this is, I, I always think if there's something I don't understand, like the prachetas, who are the prachetas? Like who are they? I mean, we say these names, but we don't know who they are. Then I'm a bit curious, I'm a curious sort of person, so I'll start looking up the prachetas. What are, who are they? And then from doing that I found this song of Lord Shiva. Oh, and it also I wanted to share it because so many of the devotees are from an Indian background. And so they have their own uh, conditioning about Lord Shiva. Oh, and also I was reading in a book about Lord Shiva and I found Lord Shiva was very interesting. And so that also attracted me to Lord Shiva. That's interesting. 
because I know um, if you go out into the, the world outside and talk about Lord Shiva, as I go on the internet and you find out, they believe that Lord Shiva is God, he's everything, um, and everything else is not real. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Tomorrow I'll ask you to tell me the positives of impersonalism. All the positive values of impersonalism. Because it's, it's, it's a very popular uh, theology and you should know why it's popular. And then you have to look at the uh, positives of personalism and you'll see that there's some things about personalism that are uncomfortable, that make impersonalism much more attractive to the ordinary person. It's good to know that. <laughs> so that's Lord Shiva's department. So I was curious. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Hare Krishna Mataji, thank you for the nice class. Mataji, you mentioned that whatever we're studying at our schools is very different to what we see here in Sri Lanka. But again, we have to answer the questions based yes. on what they've taught us so that we can pass the exams. Although we know that they're not right. So I'd like to ask, um, we are encouraged in schools to get a good education, a yes. good job and a good yes. package of money so that bhakti yes. can be easier because without money bhakti is a bit difficult. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so what should we do to stay on the right path? Because I see for myself I get two to three hours maximum to read the Srila Bhagavatam and in school we stay with the teachers for eight hours every day. Yeah. So you have to <coughs> um, hold on to the guidance of people who have already crossed that river. Uh, <coughs> pardon me. People who who understand. Yes, this is this educational system is part of the Kali Yuga. It's it's meant to to push people away from spiritual life, and it's very effective. And so we see oftentimes that when young girls and boys your age, they're this age, they're very interested in Srimad Bhagavatam and Krishna and so on. And when they get to university, they feel like, oh, nobody here is interested in that. Everybody here is interested in this. So maybe I should also put aside my things and go over this way. And even Srila Prabhupada speaks about, interestingly, how he put his deities away when he went to university. Not that he put his faith away, he didn't lose his Krishna consciousness, but he put the deities aside for a certain amount of time and then they came back very strongly. So he became a little busy with his studies, he had to pass his exams, he had to do things like this. And his father was watching him all the time. His father knew he needed an education so he was prepared for that, but he was watching his spiritual advancement at the same time. So you have to, uh, if you have parents who are watching you, you have to listen to them a little bit when they say, what's your name? Sivia. Sivia. Sivia? Sivia. If they say, Sivia, come a bit to this side, you're going a little too far to that side, you have to listen to them. And if they're not your parents, they're other devotees who are caring for you, looking after you, then you have to try and trust them to balance again. 
so that by the time you finish your university education and you've got a job and things are running for you in your life, you can increase your Srimad Bhagavatam from three hours to four hours. <laughs> what do you think? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Does that make sense to you, Sibir? Yes, Mataji. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. When we hear the children ask questions, it's very, uh, very valuable because they don't have the filters that we have as adults. <laughs> so they're simple. May, may I make a, a comment for better or yeah. worse? For worse. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> um, so um, since I was a little girl, I always wanted to draw and paint. Although I grew up in a religious school, I always had to distill the essence of what was going on around me and use that as fuel for my true goal. So perhaps you could try that too. And this is very interesting, Rasa, because she, grew up, she went to a religious school, she wanted to draw and paint, but she's not in that religion anymore. She's a Hare Krishna. What happened? Still drawing and painting. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so Rasa's point is that she was so determined to draw and paint. And her desire to draw and paint brought her to Krishna consciousness. So we shouldn't worry too much if we have to go out into the world and get some education and some qualification, but you should have an idea what you'd like to do with your life. And then if you walk through, it's like if you're going to uh, your friend's house and you're walking through a street and you don't know anything about this street, you're not confused because you know I'm going to my friend's house. So you're not thinking, look at that house, look at this house. I, uh, should I stay here? Should I go here? No, I'm going to my friend's house. So you have to have that determination. Rasa had it in relationship to drawing and painting. Thank you, Rasa. That was very interesting. <laughs> Any other wonderful comments? Yes. Mm. Hare Krishna Mataji, thank you for the class and all the care that you put into this class. Uh, just a really quick one. Yes. Uh, how come um, Lord Shiva's got this molten gold um, complexion? when he's otherwise depicted as like dark blue? Well, it's interesting because Srila Prabhupada says in the purport that mostly Lord Shiva's are uh, uh, depicted as white. And I was thinking, white, I, usually he looks as dark, darkish color. But in other descriptions of Lord Shiva, it describes that he's a pale complexion. And also you should know that there's different, uh, there's different um, what would you call it? Uh, different manifestations of Lord Shiva. Um, he's one. He's not not different. But there's eleven rudras, different forms of Lord Shiva that perform different tasks, but they're all also Lord Shiva. So here he's appearing in this lustrous, uh, sp special way. Also, Lord Shiva has a manifestation called Sada Shiva, in the Vaikuntha region. He's a, Lord Shiva is a manifestation of Lord Vishnu. So he's, he's not outside of our Vaishnava 
theology. But if you meet him down here and you don't know about his roots, you might say, oh, he's just this. But if you trace back his, to his source, he's actually a Vishnu form in the form of Lord Shiva. Lord Shiva is the glance that goes towards the material world. He's the one that impregnates all the jivas into the womb of the Maya Shakti. He is between Lord Vishnu and matter, is Lord Shiva. He's a very mysterious person. <laughs> Thank we'll you. Just talk more about that as we're going on. Awesome. Yeah. Any other? <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. It's a beautiful class. Uh, the thing is, uh, following um, Rasandi Mataji's question, yes. uh, yesterday one um, devotee, she comes, she's beginning to come to temple regularly on Mondays, and she says she has so, so much time spending her research work. So how can I tell her to use that research work into Krishna consciousness? Make friends with her. <laughs> Make friends with her first. She's very resistant, very. Yes. Uh, she, she's very particular into what she wants to do, very resistant. Yes. Yeah. You see, if you don't make friends with her and she, she likes you, trusts you, and so forth, it's hard to change somebody's taste because they'll just think, um, well, that's your idea, this is my idea. But if they trust you, then they will listen to you, and if they'll listen to you, then you can influence her to adjust things. If the family and friends are very resistant, you can't preach them very easily. But again, the same thing. If they see that you're very happy and you're doing well, um, sometimes there happens a time comes in their life where they have some difficulty they'll turn to you and you'll be very surprised because they've been watching you and they've been seeing that you're actually a devotee and you're a nice person and they're having a problem they they think again also maybe I should ask her maybe she can help me but family are the hardest ones because they're the closest and they're always there right so they're looking at everything and they know you before they know everything <laughs> Hare Krishna. Yes, Jai Sachi. Hare Krishna. Yes. Not fifty years ago. You have to ask her how old she is. <laughs> I think she's here somewhere. <laughs> is she? He said that was in 75, am I right? 75, yeah, yeah. yeah Let's so not talk about 50 years. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, don't. <laughs> so I was just thinking, because we have a lot of kids. Yes. This is a society which is mostly now made of grasters. Yes. Probably next time when you come, you can actually give a session on where you were how you actually progressed to where you are now, so that we can all learn from your experience, how to raise the kids, <coughs> how to give them in Krishna consciousness. And um, 
lot of people would like to be where you are now and it will be actually a nice way to actually learn from your experience. Well, the only thing that I would raise as a, as a doubt in what you're saying is that the circumstances under which we raised our children, uh, first of all, are not present anymore. They're not current anymore, one. Two, that we made lots of mistakes in raising our children. <laughs> and a lot of the children were injured by the mistakes we made. So it's not easy for me to say, this is the way you raise your children. Um, but I would say that the most important thing is that the parents continue to grow, both as devotees and as people, and that they, they, they become gradually more and more wise. And that takes time, that's not a formula, you know, that we take three tablets and... <laughs> so I don't mind speaking about um, my own experience, but I don't see my experience as an ideal model for others, because the times have changed. Uh, you can still, I'm sure they could learn many things, I'm not uh, denying that point, but that's perhaps my response. Yeah, because in the beginning I know a lot of mistakes were made, you know. So many. So many. And um, even going through those mistakes, now with that knowledge, mm. what we did, what we shouldn't have done, so the next generation don't do the same thing. We can ask our children yeah. to speak. Yeah. Yeah. Because they can say, well, this was very hard. When yeah. you did this to me, mm. that didn't work. Yeah. Uh, and then we can hear from them, sometimes that really will help parents to avoid what they feel is the best thing, I thought was the best thing, and then later on the, the children tell you, that was horrible when you did that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we hear that all the time, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember being here in Melbourne actually with my daughter and son and my son was around about nine years old and he was very restless, he was, he was playful and when he was in the Vrindavan Gurukula he was, you know, structured but in the summer when we would come here to Melbourne and stay he would run and run and run and I remember telling him, you must chant Japa and <laughs> and bringing him in here and telling him you must chant Japa and he would look at me and say, I will never chant Japa in my whole life! <laughs> because we forced him, yeah. you know, he wanted to play and I didn't know what else to do, what else makes you Krishna conscious other than chanting Japa. And, but he was too young to take that as beneficial. So sometimes we force our children into a mold and we think that that's good for them. But later, when they grow up, they, they'll tell you what they thought. <laughs> I'm sure we've all had that experience. Yeah. All right, I think we should finish. Another question? Remembrance. Yes. Yes. Depending on him. Yes. So if you depend on him, when you're dealing with your parents, if you depend on Krishna, then he may give you the inspiration what to say to them, most definitely. 
and he may give them the opportunity to actually hear you as well. Okay, there, confirmed. <laughs> All right, I think we should stop here with the kirtan. Jai, Shri Prabhupada, Srimad Bhagavatam ki Jai, Hare Krishna. Ahem. <clears throat>